Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we're talking about the critical things you need to learn in order to go out after high returns in the stock market with relatively low risk. Something that by the you know the way the modern portfolio theory says is impossible and that the Securities Exchange Commission frowns on any advisors suggesting that they could do such a thing for their clients. So we are in uncharted territory. We're out there without a parachute. We're hanging out without a life raft, swimming in shark infested waters, trying Sounds to describe fabulous, Dad. <laughs> trying to describe to you how the best investors in the world keep getting these incredible results. And you want me to summarize it up real quick for you, Danielle? I do, please. All right, it starts with this, sports fans. We begin with this very simple idea. Will this business be worth more in 10 years? And if so, then I can think about buying it. That's pretty simple. That's pretty simple. Yeah. It allows for a lot of things to happen over those 10 years, ups and downs, mm -hmm. backs and forths. Mm -hmm changes in management, changes mm -hmm. in what's happening in the company. I love it. And I, so the question is, can you look forward those 10 years mm -hmm. and get a good sense of where you think this company's going? So it's a giant fortune telling game. Is that what you're saying? Well, no. Fortune telling is like <laughs> this horrible concept. No. We're not shark infested at... waters is better? Well, we shark infested waters is the regulators who are out there telling you that, you know, they ah. really don't want you to do this kind of thing. They want you to massively over diversify, stay with the market and just do the market rate of return minus the fees that you're paying. And that's what they say is the very best that you can do. We beg to disagree politely and with great respect that the academics who have created this, this modern portfolio theory that says that you can't beat the market and that the price of things is always what they're worth, um, they have a flawed construct. And the major flaw in the, in the modern portfolio theory construct is that all investors, particularly professional ones who manage most of the money in the market, all investors are rational all the time. Therefore, price and values are always the same. And it turns out that there's some great work being done by um, behavioral economists that's, that prove otherwise, that in fact, experts make sort of fast thinking mistakes all the time with their biases, um, that they're in fact biased toward short term results, since that's how they're judged, and that long term be damned. They they would like long term, but short term is critical. You don't yeah, get to survive. We got, in, we got into that a bit uh, a, a while ago. Uh, I don't even know when, maybe two or three months ago, we got into it a good amount. And yeah, I mean, basically, investors are total humans with incentives <laughs> that are different than those in the economic models, necessarily. Yeah. And, oh my gosh, somebody's finally talking about it. It's you know, pretty amazing when there's an academic theory that shows up where you kind of go like, yeah, why weren't we all saying that the whole time? But until somebody articulates it well and has some evidence for it, it makes a lot of sense what they were saying before that. Well, it does, and so does a flat Earth theory. It's you know, it's it, exactly it, it exactly. conforms That's a to great your experience. You know? Of course, it's flat. I see it flat in front of me. <laughs> what are you talking about? People would fall off of it if it wasn't flat, and we don't. Of so therefore, they would. it's flat. 
And and so and and actually the academics were faced with this idea that all the time that people would push back on modern portfolio theory and say, well, but look at these guys are doing crazy things all the time in the stock market. Um, and they would say, yes, but those things cancel each other out, that they're crazy in both ends of the of the bell curve, and therefore they don't count. And Meaning like the people who you're like the great investors who you're talking about yeah. who get extremely high returns year upon year are just a total anomaly and really can't be considered in a larger model. And then there are the people who lose all their money and those people are also a total anomaly and can't be considered in the larger model. And then there's all the like mutual funders and fee getting advisors and all that in the middle. No, but that's really good. What you just said there. (laughs) (laughs) That was right. That was exactly right. That then why that, did I get a no? Well, because I'm talking about the sort of the uh, the pressure between ir- irrational behavior and rational behavior, and and so oh. the academics all know that yeah, there's definitely obviously irrational behavior in the market. It's just that their their theory says that it doesn't matter because it's not a lot, and it can't and you don't you don't know since it's irrational you don't know if it's irrational high or irrational low you know, irrational to the left or irrational to the right. It, it just, their idea was it just cancels each other out. And mm. and in fact, what you were proposing is that there are groups of investors which act incredibly irrationally and lose all their money. And then opposed to that would be investors who act incredibly rationally for long-term results like Buffett and Munger and all the people we follow who get amazing results because they're operating very rationally in a world that is long-term dominated by irrational behavior, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Short-term. We should design our own bell curve. And I got to tell you. The investing world. Danielle, I have learned a lot listening to you. Um, You are maybe one of the first investors, if not maybe the first investor I've ever worked with, who just came right out and said, look, I'm dominated by fear. Like the emotion here is what's, freezing me from doing anything. And, you know, it just turns out that 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 sense of being dominated by fear or dominated on the other side by greed um, drives an enormous part of the market. And you're probably wise to stay out of it, really, if if you recognize that. I think the reason I'm the only person who's ever said that to you or to, to anybody who's an investor is because we don't invest. People like me who feel like that, we don't invest. Why would you? It's ridiculous. Well, the crazy so thing again, is like that I'm you... responding to my own perfectly logical incentives, which is it feels scary. I don't like it. Makes me nervous, gives me anxiety, makes me feel yucky and upset and unhappy. So of course I would back away from that. It's completely logical. Or you'd become and- a fund manager. Where, where whose emotions you just described almost perfectly. No, but there's something else going on with those people that I don't relate to at all because some for some reason they got into that business over any other business in the world they got into that business. So I don't relate to that at all. And and, and I think the views coming forward that these guys are, are largely guys are dominated by fear that they live in a state of constant uh, stress, um, trying to do something that they know is virtually impossible for them, given their investing strategy and their requirement to have good short-term investing results. 
it's virtually impossible to beat the market. You, you can't go to flea markets every day and buy everything at the current price, whatever they'll sell it to you for, and expect that you're going to have some great bargains that are not canceled out by most of the rest of the crap you bought. So these guys are just in an impossible situation. By the way, I love the show Billions. I maybe don't, <laughs> shouldn't actually say that. I don't know. It's quite risque, but it's oh a fabulous show. I and don't know anything about it. What channel taken, is it on? It's on Showtime and it's taken so much. Andrew Ross Sorkin is one of the writers and he's very knowledgeable about the whole space. And it's basically a war between a hedge fund manager in New York and one of the top attorney generals in New York who's prosecuting this guy for severe insider trading. And the hedge fund manager is, I mean, and the guy's doing it like, you know, Ahab going after that whale. It is an obsession with this attorney general. And the hedge fund manager is equally obsessed with tearing this guy apart. Um, and so you have two individuals with incredible resources, virtually unlimited resources between the government and these billions of dollars. And of course, the thing that tightens up the tension is that the attorney general's wife is the key psychologist for this guy's fund. Oh, there's always <laughs> something personal. It's quite good. And the beauty is it's taken out of the headlines. I mean, the stuff that goes on in this show, you can't hardly believe, except that it's been in the headlines in, in the Wall Street Journal. Well, and the beauty is that for everyone, it's all about our incentives in our lives. What's a disincentive? What's a good incentive? What's adverse? What's perverse? What's what's happening that's forcing us into one direction or the other? And that's what that show's about. And that's what people whose job is to be a fund manager's lives are about. And that's what our situation is trying to learn investing is about. How do I make this work in a way that doesn't give me that like shaky, anxious feeling. Like, how do you do it where you, since you have no idea what that feels like, how do you, how do you handle your investing where you're not too aggressive? Well, you know, we all well I, I go by this idea that I should focus on being lazy, bordering on sloth, that this is all about patience and uh, the, a high degree of confidence after doing this for 30 years that this market will turn and it will it will absolutely and with total certainty, the market will turn and fluctuate and what is now a, a very high priced asset will become inexpensive and on, and on sale. And if I just am willing to wait, it's going to happen and make me look smart. I love it. All right, Lazy, listen to this. Okay. For the last two episodes, we have been off the rails, Dad. First, we talked about Ted Williams for a ridiculously long amount of time in a ridiculously convoluted analogy, which I personally highly enjoyed. And last time, we had to talk about the Amazon and Whole Foods deal closing. So we have been promising to talk about management and these incentives, I mean, it's exactly what we're talking about. These incentives that the people who are managers, executives, board of directors at these large corporations, the incentives that they're dealing with and what they're dealing with a lot of the time is short term. How do I get the stock price up? How do I get more money without really caring that much about the 10 year view of that company? That's exactly. what we're seeing over and over. Exactly. And you mentioned you know, quite a few weeks ago at this point, 
this article about dry ships that you had read on the Wall Street Journal. So I have been promising everyone we're going to get to it. And today, I'm not letting us go off the rails. We are going to get to it because it's right on what we want to talk about anyway. It is. And essentially, we could we could say a simple a simple argument for trying to figure out what, what your managers are going to do in a company is to follow the money. Just as you would yeah. with fund managers, you, you look at the incentives, as you just said, as the incentives for management, and you'll discover that what Danielle just said is absolutely true. What you absolutely said is that these guys are thinking short term more and more as they come into the executive suite after 30 years of working their way up through the politics of a major corporation, and they land in the executive suite, and they are going to be there a short period of time. They want everything to go well on their watch so that they can collect their five, whatever is it, seven, eight-figure bonus. Yeah. <clears throat> Some of them nine-figure, you know, $100 million bonus um, is not in, uh, that uncommon. And they want to collect that in the worst way and retire to wealth and riches for the rest of their life. <clears throat> and so, and I if, feel like this is the point at which we all go, oh, such total jerks. I can't even believe it. But really, like, put yourself in that situation. And I'm not saying they're not total jerks, but I get it. Like, on some level, the same way you can identify with that guy on the show who's probably a total scumbag hedge fund manager slash, like, some sort of unscrupulous lawyer, you know? Like, <laughs> you can at the same time, you can get it. They've worked their way up their whole lives. This is the payday. This is their chance. Mm -hmm. I get it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not, I don't agree with it. Don't get me wrong. But I can put myself there and I can understand it. Which is why generally it's so wonderful to invest with a founder. Usually the founder yeah. has all the same incentives as the shareholder. You've got a tremendous amount of your net worth buried in this company's stock. And the only way you're going to get that out is the company continues to be successful. And so we look at companies like um, a Microsoft, like Starbucks, uh, McDonald's, um, uh, Apple, you know, where, where someone is running this thing or was running it who is extremely incentivized with their net worth to make sure that the company continues to be operated profitably for the owners of the business. So you've got alignment there. Follow the mm -hmm. money. Right. Mm -hmm. It's but, a really interesting in a smaller version of that in the startup world. There's a lot of controversy often between or over bringing in an outside professional CEO, so to speak, like somebody who can help the founder run a company and take it from small size to medium to large size, which a founder may not have had experience doing and probably hasn't. And there's often a lot of controversy around whether or not that is good for a company because of those, again, like that identification with the company, exactly what you were just saying. Somebody coming in from the outside is never going to feel the same way about it as a founder. And if they can find the right fit, it works extremely well. Mark Zuckerberg has done a really good job of that at Facebook, where he has Sheryl Sandberg, who is a total like corporate person, um, and she and a couple other executives there have really, with him, led the company into something he could have never done on his own. But well, at the same time, he's made sure it's kept its heart. Well, we've sort of we sort of got the idea that if you line yourself up with the founder, you you have a extra confidence that you're going to be, you know, well taken care of. You're going to be taken care of with integrity and so on. Which is what makes this dry ships debacle for shareholders so amazing is that. 
they got screwed by the founder. So this is really, really, really unusual. Maybe if you own a shipping company, you just don't quite feel the same way about it as if you <laughs> as if you invented something new that changed the world. <laughs> so what happened so. in dry ships? Do you want to give us the rundown or do you want me to do it? I want you to do it because I this company's stock has fallen 99.9% in just six months. So yeah, give us a rundown on it. It's a crazy, so from a legal perspective, I find this impressive. <laughs> I'm not giving legal advice. I have no, I have, my only knowledge is from third party reporting. So don't take this as any sort of legal comment in any way. But um, just from the information I have, it's really interesting what they did. So here's what happened. Dry Ships, the company, which as dad said is a shipping company, um, and they own a number of ships, just like it sounds, was totally running out of money and basically about to die. And this outside smaller investing company through various means showed up and said, we will buy some of your stock at a discounted price. And then that money from the purchase will come into the company. You'll have money to spend on more ships or whatever it is that the company needed. So they did that deal. They sold stock at a discount to this outside company. Then here's the sketchy part. At some, okay, so then they did a reverse stock split. So a stock split, just a straight up stock split, is when, let's say, two shares, or sorry, one share becomes two shares. So the stock just splits. You still own the same overall amount, but it's just split up into different numbers of fractions. So a reverse stock split is the exact opposite of that. And if you own two shares, it becomes one share. You still own overall the same amount. It's just fewer or yeah, fewer numbers of stock. So first they issued a ton of stock at a discount to this company, got the money in, then reverse stock splits, stock split the stock, thereby reducing the, the number of shares. And in the course of that, the, the price should have gone way down, which it did. But then all of a sudden it shot up and nobody knows why. Nobody knows who was buying it, if it was apparently they've checked into whether or not it was related to these companies and they can't find any connection but somehow the stock shot way up and this ensuing roller coaster made everybody on the internet take notice so then people started buying in wondering if this was going to happen again and they did it all over again they did it three more times so three more times they issued stock at a discount to this outside company got the money in and then reverse stock split the stock. And in the ensuing ups and downs of this, the original investors from way before this happened have had their stock price reduced from, I think it said from $5,000 per share to $1 per share. <laughs> and that was a few weeks ago. It might've gone down even since then. So yeah. the question is, well, let, one let, more thing. Okay. How on earth, as the founder, as you said, the guy who should be totally aligned with the company, the guy who should have his fortunes rise and fall with this company, how on earth did he not also lose all his money in the company and lose voting control of the company? Well, I will tell you, and this also is something we've talked about, voting control of the company. Before they did all of this, they issued preferred stock to him that gave him 
I think it was 100,000 votes per share of this voting preferred stock. So essentially now he controls complete voting power of the company, has no worries about that, and then they went through this whole process. I mean, it's insane. And the question here is, is it illegal? Oh, even even more. Well, is it illegal? That's a first really huge question because there's no evidence that either the Canadian company that was providing capital or the Greek founder or anybody involved in the company had anything to do with what looks like massive stock manipulation. I mean, yeah, obviously, exactly. they decided exactly. to split the stock and reverse split the stock and all that. But that's all technically <laughs> legal to do. All they totally legal. Do, it's, you know, it might be a little weird. It might be a little sketchy. It's all legal. But of course, the smoking gun is that this guy took total voting control before this really started to happen, which right. would indicate some degree of forethought that the stock shares were going to go through some manipulation. So yeah. there's enough smoke out there that the SEC is now... <clears throat> digging into this and subpoenaing documents and they're going to yeah. try to track down if there's anything written down about this if there's any conversations that got recorded um, they're going to find it but at this point you know just full disclosure there's nothing that indicates that the founders done anything illegal um, well at all i have a comment on that actually ah, okay there is some and i'm not a securities regulation expert but there's some comments out there from professors of security regulation saying that they that this outside company that invested in them may have actually acted as kind of an underwriter, which is illegal without being registered with the SEC. And they are not registered as an with the SEC as an underwriter because they bought the shares and immediately intended to resell them and did immediately resell them, which is what an underwriter does. So there's that. But I think people are kind of going, well, it's a little sketchy. Lots of people buy stock and sell it quickly. Like, can you really prove anything with that? So that's the one the one thing I've seen that might be a little bit of a sticking point. And then there's the this this other and I'm I'm gonna say things are facts and I'm just talking about stuff I've read. So believe me, this is all secondhand. But the owner of the business, the founder of the business, who is not the sole owner, he owns some shares, that person also owns a bunch of ships that are not owned by dry ships. Oh, okay. And is selling those back and forth, at least to the company, um, to perhaps his own benefit, right? So we have he some- He sold these other ships to dry ships? As dry ships collected more capital, he sold the ships to dry ships. He oh. The stock goes nearly to zero, but he's cashing out several hundred million dollars of ships which in this market may only be worth scrap because there's so many ships that have been built, way too many for the market right now. So well, this I mean, is, that's clearly not an arm's length deal. Right. But on the so other hand- So you'd have to have an appraiser again, come like, in and say, right. okay, here's the, you know, here's the value in an arm's length appraisal. And what you don't know, is it an, is it an appraisal like um, Washington Mutual was getting back in 2007, where I want to buy a house for, you know, you. I want to sell my house, so I'm going to tell you what it's worth, and then you appraise it there, you know? And so we end up with all of this manipulation. So here's the point, you guys. I think we'll get yeah. right down to it. We don't know the facts, and we don't know how it comes out. What we know is the shareholders have gone through a massive loss. I mean, absolute, total, complete devastation to shareholders. So the point we're trying to make is around the concept of importance of management having integrity that you can trust 
and having the talent to operate the business. And sometimes those are those are separate. Um, this this guy may be a very talented ship owning, you know, iron ore ship dry ship manager, um, but may not have the best long term interests in mind of the of the owners of the business besides himself. And so, how do you avoid running into a dry ships problem, right? How do you how do you keep that from happening? And uh, I'll tell you the the idea that we can just invest with the founders. Um, and they will always be on our side is being proven even that to not be something we can stand on uh, as if it's cement, uh, you know? We, oh, we yeah. just don't know. No. We just don't I know. I mean, so- remember, do you remember that whole episode we did about voting rights and how some family-run companies actually have really messed up situation with their voting rights for other shareholders? Yep, yep. I mean... Yeah, you gotta. You just, we've gotta look into. Uh, it's like the conclusion is always like, oh, you gotta just look into everybody, and it's all the worst. It the conclusion is that the number of companies that you and I, as just ordinary regular people, the number of companies that we're going to be able to really understand well enough, when we when we say we're capable of understanding, that means we we need to be able to understand the management team's incentives and what they're capable of doing. And if we can't feel like we've really got it, you know, and this guy's in Greece for crying out loud. He's, you know, this is an offshore company. They've listed themselves in the United States to gather in capital. But you have to ask yourself, do I want to be putting my money out there in some other country, effectively, with somebody who may not subscribe to the same sort of moral code that that I want in a, in a, in a CEO? I mean, believe me, it's not just because they're Greek and it's not just because they're foreign. It's because it's harder to get a grip when you can't, you know, you can't see them day to day. You don't know what they're doing day to day. There's not a lot of coverage by the press on what these people are doing. There's no real bio background. You just, I think that's the key point, what you just said. There's not which, a lot of press coverage. Which would apply equally, actually, to a lot of very small companies, micro caps, exactly. small caps, startups are, are I mean, talk... To, you're a startup expert, so what? Surely these venture capitalists must just go through this major league deal. Have you ever been involved in sort of vetting out a management team or a founder? Yeah. yeah. What do they dig? It's really it's huge. It's really important. I mean, I, I'm sure I've said this before, but VCs always say they invest in the people rather than the idea because the idea will probably change uh-huh. and almost always does, but the people will stay. So what they're investing in are that those people will change it usefully and will change it for the better. So really, I mean, we do our legal vetting for sure, but when a venture capitalist is deciding or an angel investor or anyone doing investing on a small scale like that is deciding to invest, they will spend a lot of personal face time with the founders of the company. They will get to know them in person. And we can't do that as small investors looking at huge publicly traded companies. I mean, we're just probably never going to meet a lot of any of these people. Some of them will feel like we meet them because they're so covered by the press. But a lot of them, there's little to no press coverage of the companies or the CEOs. So I find it really difficult. I think you called out a really important part of this whole management research process that, um, is a challenge. Well, I'll tell you the, the the thing that I do because I'm maybe a little 
it's a little easier for me to get a get a, a meeting with a CEO, right? Than oh yeah, anybody. I think it's a little easier for you to get a meeting with the CEO. <laughs> and then well, because that's that's what investors always say. Like hedge fund guys are always like, "Oh, I just I just call them up. Well, I just go to their just go to their uh, headquarters." Yeah, and I'm like, um, "We have jobs. Like, <laughs> like what are you thinking?" Well, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm just saying that it's easier for me and, and it's easier for Buffett than it is for me. Right. So, yeah, people yeah, have so. different levels of access. And Warren has been saying for 50 years that this idea of management is so critical to the investment process. It's one of the four things he considers. Right. Do I understand yeah. the business? Does it have a moat? Does the management team talented and have integrity? And do I buy it on sale? So management, talent and integrity is a judgment call. There's no I mean, we can run numbers through our computer and we do and come up with analysis that the computer can create. But man, there is just no substitute for the subjective impression of the CEO. And obviously, you know, you can do some things objectively as he had failures in the past, as he cheated anybody, they take bankruptcies, There's, you know, but most most of the people who are running these companies haven't been through anything that you can nail down legally. No, you know? of course not, because they're not going to get a second job if they've been through something like that. Yeah, exactly. So what Buffett does is try to come to a, a, a sense of the CEO um, to this level, that I'd like to have this person as my son-in-law or daughter-in-law. Like, <laughs> that's, that's intense. Yeah, so you, on that level. And of course, Warren buys a lot of private companies where they have a deep interaction with the CEO because Berkshire owns the whole thing. And what they're really looking for is, is, is managers who are incentivized to run the business from the love of the business. These are people who already are multimillionaires. They don't really have a major league economic demand on themselves to, to go make money at all costs, right? And so they're doing it because they love doing it. The same reason Buffett loves running Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, come on, he doesn't need any more money. He's giving away money. So it's just because he loves doing it. They're looking for that. They're looking for that CEO that just has the joy of life connected with running this business. So that's one clue right there. All right. And you're, you're going, huh? Uh, no, I, I'm shaking my head that that's, if only it's like a goal for all of us in our lives. <laughs> if only we could life. all just work our jobs for the love of doing it. Right. Sounds lovely. I'm it glad does, that Warren it? Buffett is seeking people out who already have that in their lives. And so can we. So, for example, Steve Jobs had that, right? I mean, he came back to Apple for a dollar a year and no stock options. I mean, I love yeah. it. It's just like the joy of doing it. And you see the same thing with Starbucks and Schwartz and you see, you know, he came back and just said, I want to run it when it, when it was stumbling. Um, you see the same thing with John Mackey at Whole Foods. John came back full blast when Whole Foods started to have a stumble and he was he was being paid literally $36,000 $36, a year and no stock options. So, I mean, it's just, it, it, these guys are doing it because they love it. So there's a clue right there. Do you just love this business or are you a fast, you know, a fast draw, you know, mercenary that's coming in to, to just, you know, you're being bought to come in and fix it um, or to run it. So that's one one clue. The mm -hmm. second and the best clue I can give you, Danielle, about picking good CEOs is to copy a great investor into the investment who does have access to the CEO. So that would be a Buffett, a Pabrai, 
I'm, you know, Guy Spear, you, you guys are friends with Guy. And Guy said he's changed his investment strategy on the heels of this this uh, debacle that we all went through with uh, with uh, this horsehead company, where mm. Guy's view was for a long, long time, up until recently, there's no point in talking to the CEOs because they're the best salesmen in the world and they're just going to sell you. Um, but he and I both met the CEO of of uh, Horsehead after they took Horsehead into into bankruptcy, and we got to interview the guy. And I'll tell you, we both would have had reservations having mm -hmm. met the guy. So um, it's like I mean, it's like dating. Like you think you kind of get a sense of somebody from their profile, and then you meet them, and it's totally different. Yeah, maybe more like even Tinder, huh? I'm just learning. That's about what tender. I'm talking about. I guess when I say dating, I like automatically mean online dating at this point. <laughs> I had no clue about Tinder. I'm like, are you kidding me? Dad, everybody's on Bumble now. What are you talking about? Oh, Everyone's geez. on Bumble. Come on. Oh my gosh. So that that is very similar, I think, is you sort of just look at, you know, the most superficial level and they look good. Okay, fine. Onward. Because it's harder to get the data, right? It's really much harder to get that personal connection. I mean, you're not going to yeah. be able to do well, it. It's impossible. Yeah, impossible. Yeah. So my advice would Wait, be... Wait, can I ask you a question? Sure. Had you heard the... Um, I'm trying to think of like ways you can get a sense for somebody without ever meeting them. Had you heard the um, quarterly shareholder calls with those with those executives? At yeah, Horsehead? yeah. And I'll tell you, man, and that'll And still in person, it was a different... You. In person, it was a different experience. It was person. It was a different experience, and I, I, I hesitate. I can't really say why. It's just like when you meet somebody, you know, you, you, you get yeah. that first impression. Okay. Yeah, sure. So these guys are all pretty, you know, facile when it comes to their quarterly earnings report. Now, I will say one of the things that you might watch for on these. By the way, what we're talking about is every quarter. There's a call between typically the CEO of the business and all of the analysts who are on Wall Street, where the CEO gives a brief statement, maybe 15 minutes, and then answers questions for half an hour from you know top analysts. And you can listen in live. And in fact, um, you can get a transcript of these things. And, um, and by doing so, you can get a sense of how this CEO is, is uh, dealing with these questions under pressure. But I'll warn yeah, you. Yeah, but I think actually listening is different. Listening is different. Very different than reading the transcript. Listening is awesome. But I'll, I'll warn you, you really need to understand the CEO a little bit and where they're coming from. Because if you listen to John Mackey, he absolutely hammered back at so many analyst questions when they were tearing into Whole Foods and really challenging him. And he would basically just hammer them. And, and, and yet I really admire the guy and totally respect him. And I, you know, I, so it's not going to be necessarily that there's just this wonderful kumbaya. What worry when you when you listen to these earnings reports, sometimes you get the feeling that these guys are in collusion with Wall Street to just have a, you know, a lovely little half an hour meeting where everything is rosy. You know, it's almost like they're trying not to do anything to upset the apple cart. So yeah. I don't trust it entirely. My the safest bet, I think, is always that you're piggybacking on top of a really great fund manager who does have access so again, a Manesh Prabhai, a Guy Spear, Warren Buffett, um, you know David Tepper, you know, Bill Ackman. These guys are all directly in touch with the CEOs. And when you see them come into something, like for example, we watched Buffett through a couple of his subordinate 
or his uh, his uh, sort of minor fund managers, Ted Wexler, go into a company like Chicago Bridge and Iron and then mm. get right back out again. Mm. That might be a huge warning to just that something's not right there. So all the numbers look good. All the cash flow looks good. And then, you know, your favorite investor is exiting that. It's often because they smell a rat, because they don't like the CEO. They got wrong answers or whatever. And then, of course, with with CBI, you've got this Philip Asherman who just, just continued to bury this company in problems. So, uh, I mean, and, obviously, you don't know what's going on there. Yeah. Just state you, that, state you just, that point. You're just not going to know. What you do know is the person you're piggybacking left the arena. So if you know if Elvis leaves the building, you might want to leave with Elvis, and and that is my my best way for the small guy, the little investor, to have some sense of confidence. Like we can do all the work, and we should to understand management because we never want to buy a company we don't understand. But at the end of the day, we're not going to know him well enough to know if we want to be our brother-in-law. Or, or son-in-law. And and because of that, it's so important that you're coming in there with somebody who you respect, who does have access to that person. And then watch carefully what that person's doing, what that investor's doing. Piggyback them right back out again if, it, if it, something changes that you don't know about. There's a reason why they're leaving that investment. Hmm. So I, so first, first find people who meet the prerequisite of loving their company. They've probably been there for a little while. Maybe they're the founder, maybe they're not, but somehow they're identifying with that company and they've proven that they're not a mercenary type of executive. Right. And then secondly, look for other, I want to call them like high-end investors, other like top investors who are moving into companies you're interested in, who, who already meet that criteria. Right. And, and, then my, uh, and my, who, who have access to the executive then, team. Then just as we wrap up my 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 other thing that I want to look at and that I suggest you look at carefully is whether the company has debt. You know, we're just, we just hate debt and we don't want debt. And debt is the thing that allows a management team like these guys at Dry Ship to manipulate the stock and threaten bankruptcy and all of that because the management team is likely to come out of bankruptcy intact and with a better ownership of the company than they went in with, whereas you, the investor, come out with nothing. And what drives that is debt. It doesn't go into bankruptcy without debt. So mm-hmm. watch those two things. What's, what is a key uh, guru, manager, guru investor doing with this company? Are they in and then out? And where's the debt situation? If there's no debt, you're on a lot safer ground with a management team you don't know. I'm intrigued by this idea of, of yeah, sort of piggybacking on investors who have had the opportunity to meet a management team. I'm going to think more about that one. Like, I'm thinking, like, I wonder if they, I wonder if they say something about that publicly. Like, I met so-and-so and and he was great. Like, I wonder if we can find articles or interviews or something where they've actually talked about these various executives. I haven't looked into that at all. I haven't seen that. Um, Although certainly on, on hindsight, they do. Right. In yeah, other I words, mean, Buffett I would guess that that's something all the time. you keep pretty close to the chest before you buy. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. And even even while you're holding that so, stock, maybe I don't. Know. I think we should dig into this some more. This concept of management is very very subjective, and and I I want to bring up a couple of cases about management that are very interesting. 
One uh, that you might want to play around with to look at for the next few days is Shield, S-H-L-D, also known as Sears and Kmart, S-H-L-D. Um, okay. Right, where they're being run not by a CEO who's an expert in their business, but by the hedge fund manager that took these guys out of bankruptcy. So let's talk about that and what the incentives are there and what can happen in that situation, because a lot of people think that Sears is on its way to an, uh, a, a, a bankruptcy soon. And what would happen to that investment should that occur? Let's talk about that next time. Okay. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Cool. That doesn't sound very rule one-y, Sears. $10 bills for five bucks are always rule one-y. <laughs> and the <laughs> argument for Shield, the argument for, for Sears is that it may have $90 of value for every share, and the shares are selling for $8 right now. So this is, uh, you know, $90 available for eight bucks. That's even better than uh, $10 available for five. So if let's- If it's true. If it's true. So let's talk about what management can it do It could there. be $0 for $9. It could easily be that yeah. if the bankruptcy is right. All right, yeah. let's talk about that next time. And until then, time to go play. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, and my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play. <laughs>